Well, church, if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, please. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 23. Just for the sake of context, before we turn to God's Word this morning, up until this point, Jesus has started his ministry, he's begun to call his disciples, and he's also begun to get into repeated conflicts, spats, confrontations with the Pharisees and the other authorities there. And that's going to be a consistent theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Of course, written to a church that was also in a time of conflict, written to a church that was also had many who were antagonistic towards them. Not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. So Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abiathar the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, you are holy, and we are not. You are perfectly wise, and we are not. You have perfect vision, and we do not. You always have good intentions, and we, unfortunately, do not. Lord, give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend who you are and who we are this morning. We ask this in the good name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, in the turn of last century, I don't know if we can talk about the turn of the century going from the 1900s to the 2000s. That makes us feel old, I think, so we won't say that. But when we talk about the turn of the century going from the 1800s to the 1900s, there was a Christian author and apologist named G.K. Chesterton. And his work, Orthodoxy, was one of the most profound works to come out of the early 20th century in Christianity. But he also had a concept called Chesterton's Fence. Chesterton's Fence. Now, Chesterton's Fence is not something that you can go down to the lumber supply store and purchase to make the front of your lawn look nice. I'm sure someone has tried it, but there's probably not a huge market in Christian-themed fences. Chesterton's Fence is a concept about what you would do if you came to a fence that you wanted to tear down. You buy a new property and you're walking through the woods, and you come to a fence. You think, I don't want this fence here. I want to live free, man, or die, whatever you do here in New Hampshire. i got to get that figured out soon. So you come to this fence, and you say, I don't like this fence. I'm going to tear it down, only to find out that the neighbor keeps a very unruly bull on the other side of this fence, and now this bull is rooting up your yard and chasing you and your children. It would have been a good idea to know why that fence was put up. But conversely, you might come to that fence 
And you might say, this fence is on my property. I don't like this fence. I want to tear this fence down. But before I do so, I better make sure I know why this fence was put up in the first place. So you go to town hall, you go to the building inspector, you go to your neighbor and say, hey, why is this fence here? And they say, oh, old man so-and-so who lived there generations ago had an unruly bull, so the previous owner of your property put the fence up, but that bull's been long gone. We ate him many years ago. His horns hang over the man's fireplace. You may take down that fence. Well, what's the point of Chesterton's fence? It's that if you see a fence, before you take it down, you need to know what it was there for. This is a principle that's important for families. This is a principle that's important for churches. And it's a principle that's important for the civil sphere as well. But for this morning, I think it's important that we keep this idea in mind as we come to talk about the Sabbath. We come to talk about the Sabbath. We talk about this one in seven day of rest that was touched on here in this text that we'll look at again as we go into chapter 3. Because so often, when we come to the idea of Sabbath rest, and we look at it objectively, or really, to be honest, subjectively, as a thing in front of us, we look at it and we choose to tear it down thinking, I know exactly what this is here for. We think about maybe legalistic upbringing that we may have had, we may even think about what we consider uh, puritanical holdovers from, from years past. But it's important that we do the good work of understanding why this fence was erected, what it is keeping back, and what it is allowing us to do. So before we get into the text, and of course, the context of this, we read already verses 23 through 28, and then again in a second text in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is two conflicts that Jesus has with authorities about the nature of the Sabbath. But before we get into the text, I think it is necessary and important that we go back to defining the Sabbath. One of the best ways to look at any doctrine, one of the best ways to look at any teaching, is to do what we do when we are teaching elementary school children how to write an essay. You have to answer who, what, when, where, and why. Who, what, when, where, and why. So let's talk about those things when we talk about the Sabbath. Who instituted the Sabbath? It wasn't the Pharisees in the first century, uh, the first century, and it wasn't even Moses on Mount Sinai. It was God who instituted the Sabbath. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And of course, that doesn't mean that it came later than Genesis 1. Again, that chapter distinction between Genesis 1 and 2 is completely arbitrary, put in long after the, that book was composed. But on the tail end of the creation of all things, God instituted the Sabbath. God instituted it. That's the who. The what is a one in seven rest. And we see this principle play out throughout many aspects of creation. We have God's creative work, seven days in which God created the world, and he took one of those days to rest. He took one of those days not to rest because he was tired, not to rest because all of that speaking things into creation took a lot out of him. It even sounds crass to say it that way, but sometimes people think about it that way. God took a one in seven day of rest because he sat back enthroned and looking at this world that he had created. The heavens, the earth, mankind, all of those things, God rested and enjoyed it. 
taking in the glory that was being given to him by everything working as it should be. But we see a one in seven within the idea of the week. We see it as a one in seven having to do with years, both for agriculture and for economy. All sorts of things that we find in this world have rest built into it. And that's important. We see it again in Genesis chapter 2. This is something that goes all the way back to creation. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, all their hosts. And on the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work which God had created in making it. So when was the Sabbath instituted? Was the Sabbath given to the Jewish people? Yes, but did it originate in theocratic Israel? Did it originate with a group of people coming out of Egypt? No, it goes far beyond that. It goes back beyond Moses. It goes back beyond the patriarchs. It goes even before we get the interactions with God and Adam and Eve. This was part of the DNA of creation. And did the DNA of creation fall apart at the fall? Did the DNA of creation completely become unraveled and reformed at the cross? No. The DNA of creation of us as human beings created by, in the image of God, but still creations of God, are wired to partake in the idea of Sabbath, in the concept of a Sabbath rest. We have to really do a lot of work. And again, if you want a fuller treatment of this concept, we did a, 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 their series on Genesis where we looked at the Sabbath in more detail. But this is, as we mentioned then, one of the third rails of contemporary evangelicalism. One of the third rails in that when you talk about this, inevitably people's initial response is, you can't tell me what I can or can't do on my Sunday. And I'm not telling you what you can or can't do. I'm just pointing out that God's law built into creation before Moses would given two tablets said that there's this idea of Sabbath for all of his creation and all of his peoples. We'll talk more about those in particulars as we move through this. But this establishes who it was that gave us Sabbath, what Sabbath is, when Sabbath was given, and where. Where was Sabbath given for both heaven and earth? If you're living somewhere else, then talk to me after the service. Why was Sabbath given? So we, we saw in Genesis chapter 2 that Sabbath was given, yes, for God. And I think that's integral to understand the concept of Sabbath. But when Moses is given the Ten Commandments, we were given a greater explanation of how man ought to receive it. So this is, from, this is the why of the Sabbath given in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six day you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work. You were your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, it's, it's amazing that even in this text we see established that the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh, the seventh day is a Sabbath of God, and then it concludes that we're doing this because God rested. So the beginning of, of the argument, if you will, that the Lord gives to Moses is that this is something that God did, and this is something for God's glory, 
and so you ought to do it too. This is something God did. This is for God's glory, so you ought to do it too. We and all creation need rest. Once again, if you farm, no matter how advanced the technology that you're using, no matter if you get the finest soil supplements that exist, no matter if your, your, your tilling strategy is top-notch, the best thing you can do for your field is to allow it to go fallow for a year every few years. But we know that we need that. We know that we need that. And it's funny because you read newspaper articles online probably. You read books, you talk to your doctor, and he's not going to ever say, go seven days without a break. Go hard. Never stop. That is the key to a long and happy life. The secular world. People understand because they are image bearers that rest is important and actually beyond important. It is essential. So we need rest. God's common grace allows us to see that. And we pattern our lives after God. God has given us a pattern and a rhythm. There's things that we ought to do. There's things that we ought to live like. And one of those things is as image bearers is to live according to the one whose image that we bear. And in creation, God worked six days and he rested one day. He didn't need it, but he did it in, in part as a pattern for us to, to emulate. And thirdly, we depend on God's provision. We depend on God's provision. This is probably the hardest thing to, to, to work through, but the easiest thing to articulate. Could you have more money if you worked seven days? Could you get more done if you worked seven days? Could you rise up faster in the corporate ranks if you work seven days? Could you feel better about the way that your house looks if you work hard seven days? Absolutely, in a vacuum. However, are you showing God faith that he will provide in six days? Notice I'm not saying five. There's no thou shalt work five and take two days off. Don't worry about that. It's funny, we often vacillate in our culture of like, don't tell me what to do. I need two days off. It's like, okay. There's nothing, that's not in the Bible. But we, we, are, we are given six days to work, and we're given one day of rest. And in that day of rest, we have an opportunity. And this is something that is reinforced as you go through the holiness code, as you go through the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where you see that one of the great opportunities given to the children of Israel is an opportunity to be thankful and grateful for the provision that God has given them in the six days such that they can rest and they can sit back and worship and do what they need to do on that seventh day. It is not a day where we are to be clinging tightly to the seat of our chairs, hoping that our investments come together. It is not a day that we are to sit and, and nervously wait for the clock to strike midnight so we can get to our email. It is not that kind of a day. It is a day to actively actively church in as much as you would actively work if given your way a day of actively showing demonstration of hope and thankfulness and faith in god's provision and so in brief this is what the sabbath is god instituted it as a one in seven rest all the way back at the beginning of creation for all of heaven and all of earth for his glory and for our good this is something that is baked into the cake of that creation that is our universe. 
It is not something that was arbitrary for the children of Israel. It is not something that was abrogated when Christ died on the cross. It is not something that is, is, is voluntary. If you try to voluntarily step outside of this, then you will reap the, the rewards. You will reap the whirlwind of running yourself ragged beyond what God's intended design is. Interestingly enough, church, one of the main arguments that we have as a church and as a culture against this, 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 this swelling movement of, of just the, the, the gender confusion that we exist in our world is that you are attempting to transcend God's design for mankind. Yet the church, unfortunately, is often all too willing to say, but we're okay with transcending God's design in this area of creation. We must be consistent. And if you, if, if you insist on eschewing God's giving us a day of rest and what the particulars of that and what those look like, we may get to, but it's not, that's not the point of the text. That's not the point of the passage. But if we insist on eschewing God giving us a day of rest and saying God's design is not firm and does not stand for all of time, then you must remove that argument as you confront the culture on the sins that we find very easy to talk about and find very easy to point fingers at. We must be consistent. If Genesis 2 is not good for us today, then Genesis 1, God created them male and female, can't be good for us today either. We must be consistent and receive them both as God's word. Anyway, that's what the Sabbath is. It's a good gift that God has given us, and we'll talk about that good gift here in a moment. But of course, just like today, it's, it's a difficult concept to talk about because of where we are as a culture and the thousands of years that have come since God instituted it. It was a difficult thing for Christ and his disciples to work through, particularly as it came to correcting those wrong impressions about the, about the Lord's Day, about the Sabbath, particularly as it came to them coming to these fences that were actually fences put up that had nothing to do with the Sabbath, and the good fence that God had given back in creation and once again at Sinai. So turn with me again, <coughs> excuse me, to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And here we see, we've established what is the Sabbath. Here we see that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So what is the situation? The situation we find in verses 23 and 24, it says, And it happened that he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the situation is that they are traveling, and they're traveling on the Sabbath. This what would have been for them sundown to sundown, Friday into Saturday. And they were walking, which was not good, and they were picking grain, which was not good. In fact, the, the limit, I believe, in some of the extra biblical writings was, I think, 1,999 steps. I'm sure there was different variations of that. And I just want to know who had the step counter back then that was keeping track of these things and how accurate it would have been, because I know that mine in 2023 is not particularly accurate. However... Work was not okay. Exodus 20.10, we already read that, established that. That, you, that in this is a day you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female slave or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your, great, within your gates. So work was not okay. And the Pharisees and what they represented had essentially gotten to the point where 
to create a safety net for their people, they said, okay, well, we don't want you going out and threshing because that would be against God's law. And we can all acknowledge that, that that is the spirit of God's law. They said, even plucking some grain, if you pluck one head of grain, what's to stop you from plucking two? And if you're going to pluck two, then you're basically threshing. And so the, the Pharisees took God's good fence of do not work, and they built up another fence next to it basically one step away. So if you're driving by a prison, you may see a prison, a, a nice brick prison wall, you know, to give it some aesthetic flair. And then about 10 yards past that, you might see the large chain link fence with the barbed wire on top of it. Well, what's the point of that? If you transcend one, at least there's one more there to stop you. And this is what the Pharisees did. They put that first fence in so that you don't get to that outside barrier. Now, there may be times where this is appropriate. I mean, to be completely fair, we do this to our children. We say, don't go in the street. But what we'll say is, here's a line. Here's a tree line. Here's where these rocks are. Here's where we even have this out here in front. Here's where this bench is and this is. We would ask that you don't go past that because we want you to stay out of the road. Now, they could follow the letter of the law and walk right up to that white line in between the lane of traffic and the, the shoulder of the road. That would be the letter of the law. But in order to, continue to articulate the spirit of the law, we set up another fence, another imaginary fence, closer to teach something about safety. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem is when we punish and when we violate in the same way as if they were transcending the actual law. And that was precisely what the Pharisees were doing. But the interesting thing about this, and, and this is why it was, it was certainly wrong, and we're not going to go to all these Old Testament texts, but actually in Deuteronomy, it allowed for eating while passing on the Sabbath. If you were walking through and you grabbed something and ate it on your way, that was not considered harvesting. It was considered basically having a snack as you were moving. So that, that fence the Pharisees built between the actual law and what they thought would be prudent and wise that fence actually cut off the people from doing something that was lawful. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? That they, in doing so, in putting up this protection, they actually cut someone off from the liberty that they were afforded. And this is peak liberalism, or excuse me, liberalism, ha, peak legalism, all right? It's the opposite of liberalism. It's peak legalism in that the, the fence that is built for protection is cutting off something good. It is cutting off the liberty that was being afforded to God's people. The Pharisees were being overprotective. And so they're calling Jesus out, saying, look at what your disciples are doing. Continuing on, verse 25, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God around the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and the ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest's? And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus knows the purpose of the law. So here Jesus is quickly appealing to David. So David is one of those guys you could appeal to. You could appeal to Moses. You could appeal to David. There's a number of Old Testament figures that if you were trying to make a point to the Pharisees, you weren't going to appeal to yourself. The interesting thing is that Jesus does that frequently because he's appealing to God. But Jesus, in making an argument for their use of the Old Testament, goes to the Old Testament. He says, by your standard, I'm going to judge you. David, for all of his sins, 
for all of his problems was in Scripture, and certainly in the minds of the Pharisees, and to us ought to be a picture of someone who, as Scripture says, had a heart after God's own heart. And so what happened? In 1 Samuel 21, we read this sometime in the last month and a half in our Bible reading plan, you probably remember this story, was David was fleeing. While David was on the run, he went into the holy place, and he went in and ate the consecrated bread. Not a word was spoken about this being against God's law. Not a word was spoken about this being inappropriate. Because what mattered more to God? Was it maintaining everything just so? Was it keeping everything in line? Or was it David and his mission and David and his men being nourished? Now, does this mean that we have a flippant attitude or God was okay with people having a flippant attitude towards the consecrated bread in the, in the place of worship? Not at all. It's that he understands that there's a priority. He understands that there's a, 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 a gradation in value. What matters more? The bread in the sanctuary that serves a symbolic purpose or his people? specifically his anointed that actually served a purpose. So what Jesus is basically saying by bringing up the story from from 1 Samuel 21 is that David broke, air quotes, broke laws because of his need. David broke a rule. David crossed over a fence. David stepped over a line because he had a particular need. And it was a need that was legitimate. It wasn't because he had been just goofing around for six days and every other place he went into and every other establishment that had food, he looked at it and said, I'll be okay, I'll be okay. And then on the time when he actually needed it, the only food that was there was in the temple or with the priests. It was because he legitimately needed food. And so David broke this law because of need. It was an acceptable violation. And I think that's what we need to think about this in these terms. It was an acceptable violation. Now that is, you can really get yourself in trouble if you start to label everything as acceptable violations. But understand this. Look at verse 27. And Jesus was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So when we talk about acceptable violations, this is really what we're talking about. Verse 27 The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So we have people in in, in our congregation that are in the medical profession. If a child, Lord forbid, hurt themselves in this building, would it be acceptable for someone who is a medical professional to seal up a wound, to pop a shoulder back into place? Many other gruesome examples I will not share with you. Would that be appropriate? I mean, but that's what they do the other six days of the week for for, for gainful employment. So why would we allow them to do that? I mean, isn't that violating the spirit of the law? Isn't that violating? It certainly is a violation of the letter of the law. Well, the reason why is it's an acceptable violation. I'll be very honest. A lot of the work that John and the worship team, the elders that many of you do on a Sunday morning is work. It, It taxes the muscles. It taxes the mind. As moms, there is no one in seven day off where you can just let the children run feral. This is an example of these acceptable violations. The one that is most common that comes up in the Old Testament is if your ox falls in a ditch. You don't say, sorry, buddy, I'll come back in the morning and I'll get you then. Try not to flail and cause any damage. 
If your ox falls in a ditch, Scripture allowed the, the, the Israelite to pull all of the work that that entails. It wasn't as simple as whistling and saying, here, boy. It meant probably digging the hole out more, building a ramp, getting your neighbors, tying some ropes, getting ox on you, and getting him up out of the hole. It took legitimate work. But does that mean that you purposely get your ox into a ditch so that you can get him out? You say, I'm going to let my lawn get really, really high for six days, watch a lot of college football on Saturday, and then when Sunday rolls around, saying, oh man, we got people coming over tomorrow. My ox is in the ditch. I got to mow. The example that I've given before was that we went to Bible college, and, and uh, they gave us Mondays off class with the intention of building this pattern in of not doing homework on Sundays. And, but they always said, if your ox was in the ditch, do homework on Sundays. But that meant that you had something unforeseen come up, a work emergency, a family emergency. And the, the, what was drilled into people was that you can't do everything else in your power to avoid doing the work the other six days so that you can then turn and find this loophole because at that point, it's not an appropriate violation. It's not a permissible violation. The spirit has been violated. But we see that the Sabbath was for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the, the, the Israelite pulling the ox out of the dish, ditch was not condemned because the intention was not to violate the Sabbath. The, 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 the elder or the pastor that spends time and energy to, to, to prepare and to deliver a sermon or lead music or set up chairs or whatever else we do in this place is not violating, this, is, is not violating the Sabbath in the sense that they've pushed something off that could be done tomorrow because it must be done today. The EMT that sets the bone, the police officer that stops the criminal, the farmer that milks the cows, the guy who has to press the button to make sure the thing happens on a Sunday that has to happen on a Sunday who presses the button, all of those are acceptable violations of the Sabbath. The question is, is the thing that we do, that we are convicted about maybe even in this moment, is that a legitimate an acceptable violation of the Sabbath. What Jesus is doing here, church, is not getting rid of the Sabbath. He's restating the Sabbath's purpose. He is going back to that original fence that was put up by God at creation, reinforced by God at Sinai, saying this is the purpose of the Sabbath. It's not to harass and hassle people who are walking from point A to point B, reaching out and getting a handful of raw grain to chew on like some really, really terrible granola from the health food store. What he's saying is that the purpose of this law is good. It's to give people rest, but you have situations where that cannot happen. And so consequently, we don't harass or, or, or hamper people themselves who are simply doing what they need to do. Jesus is restating the purpose that he had when he, as part of the Godhead, gave the idea of Sabbath rest. And then he makes another statement in verse 28. Consequently, the Son of the Man, Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He claims his divinity, Son of Man, again, being this, 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 uh, this high term, a term of God's anointed, a, a, a term of, of God in flesh. It's something that we will continue to talk about as he uses that, that terminology and that title for himself more and more in the Gospel of Mark. But he is saying that he is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. That this is one more area. He's already demonstrated his authority in teaching, demonstrated his authority over uh, physical ailments, demonstrated his authority over the demonic world. He's expressed, though, that he is Lord of those things, and here he is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, and by extension, he's Lord of creation, and he's the Lord of God's law. Jesus, when he says these things, this is what would have been heard by those antagonistic to him, the Pharisees. If he claims that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying he is Lord of the law, and he is saying he's Lord of creation. One more example of his lordship. Continuing on, there's another parallel uh, example of, of a, a conflict with the Pharisees about the Sabbath in verses 1 through 6, and we'll go through this one quickly. And he entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel together with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So we see what the Sabbath is. What is a Sabbath? We see Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And thirdly, we see that the Sabbath is for our good. The Sabbath is for man's good. And we see that in this really tense interaction in chapter 3. So the first thing we see is the Pharisees' trap. The Pharisees are setting a trap in verses 1 through 2. So Jesus enters the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him, Jesus, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. What a wonderful group of church leaders. They were in the synagogue waiting for someone to mess up. You may have had a church experience like this. You may have had a school experience like this where people are watching you just to see if you make a mistake or a misstep so that they can say, aha. And that's precisely what the Pharisees were doing. There's a wonderful quote from early church father Athanasius about this. He says, if he, talking about the man, was withered in his hand, the ones who stood by were withered in their minds. If he was withered in his hand, they were withered in his minds, their minds. And I think we actually ought to see that parallelism. Here's a man who is who's coming to the, the, the synagogue because he, he needs it. He was coming to the synagogue because this is a place where he needed help. And the ones that should have known precisely what the synagogue was for was going there for an ulterior malel- <laughs> bad purpose. The Pharisees set a trap in verses 1 and 2. And then you see actually Jesus, and, and hopefully you're okay with me saying this, we see Jesus set a trap. He sets a, a, a situation where, where they are, are now going to have to, they think they're the ones who have a, a position of power, but Jesus is actually now going to put them into a situation where they have to answer in a particular way, and they have to make a step that reveals their motives. Jesus' motives have been plain at the beginning. But here we're going to see what Jesus is, is allowing them to show their motives in verses 3 and 4. And he said to the man with withered hand, get up and come forward. First of all, can you imagine that? This poor guy. So many of these people that are getting healed, they, they enter the spotlight in a way that they probably never wanted. They were in the business of every time they were, they were pointed out or they were uh, lifted up, it was never in a good way. You know, never like, hey, get out of here, you know. Move. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be in this place. You go to the site. There's a place for the poor. There's a place for the beggars. There's a place for the sick. There's a place for the leprous. Go there. 
Every time they're called out, there's probably something bad. But here Jesus is saying, get up. And then verse 4, and he said to them, talking to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent, which is inevitably, the, I mean, that was the best answer that they could muster. I mean, if they answered, they'd be indicting themselves for doing something. So again, they set a trap, but now Jesus masterfully sets a trap for them that's even more convicting than what they had intended to do to, the, to him. So he asked two questions. And one of them is anticipating a response that's actually given in the text. But he asks, is it lawful to do good or do harm? Here's a man who needs help. Jesus had help. Jesus was going to bring help. So what does the law? Was the law to help the man or to refuse to help the man? What is good? What is the point? What is the purpose? We have, we have an ox in the ditch. We have livestock. And here we have a man who, even though it's the Sabbath, he is in a ditch. He is in a place who is stuck. And Jesus is saying, what am I supposed to do? Keep him there? Heal him tomorrow? Or heal him right now? And then he asks, kind of, it seems like, it seems random because no one's dying here. Is it okay to save life or to kill? Remember what the Pharisees begin to do in verse 6. That point, on the Sabbath, they begin to plot to destroy Jesus. So they answered their own question. They answered the question. For them, it was okay to gather, to plot. I don't know about you, but every time I've plotted, it's been work. I don't plot very often, but when I do, it requires a meeting and a table and dark robes and candles and, you know, mischievous laughs and things like that. I don't plot. But when they plotted, it was work. And so this is, this is the, the insanity of the situation. They were plotting against Jesus. To them, it was okay to kill. They intended to kill Jesus on the Sabbath, and so they were revealing their motives, and they were revealing their hearts. So the Pharisees had a trap, Jesus has a trap, and then there's a response from Jesus in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, it's interesting, this morning, the children in Sunday school had the Tower of Babel, and God responds to the people who are building the tower in anger. You see this amazing, beautiful thread of a consistency of the character and nature of God. If we read the Bible for what it's worth, God is angry at sin, angry at those who build a tower out of defiance and pride and hubris, angry at those who seek to promote their own good and not the good around them. That is something that we see angry from God on high in this transcendent picture back in Genesis 11, but it's also something that we see here in this place God, in flesh, incarnate, among those who are doing the very same thing of putting their own interests above others and certainly above God's. So Jesus is angry, it says in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, grieved at their hardness of heart. So you see that it's not a conflict because Jesus is able to do it perfectly. He is angry at their sin, but he's grieved at their hardness of heart. And that should be our response to sin too. We shouldn't be only angry. We should also be grieved for people who are sinning. We shouldn't only be grieved and say and, and kind of permit and, and allow and, and, and write off their sin. It should be this, this mixture of anger and grief, anger at sin, grief for the one who's caught in sin. Jesus does that perfectly where we have to struggle to do it well. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus' response of one of anger, perfect anger, Grief, perfect grief, 
but also power. Because what does he say? Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Here we see the humanity of Christ. We see that Jesus is one who has hunger. I imagine he was eating along with his disciples, even though Mark's account doesn't say it. And he has emotion. He is, he is human. He is taken on flesh. He is the acceptable sacrifice like we talked in the catechism. He has hunger. He has physical needs. He has emotion. He, he expresses himself in the way that we do. We see his humanity, but we also see his divinity. And we see that as he healed with a word. Now, this is interesting. Does Jesus do a work when he says, stretch out your hand? Is Jesus working? The Pharisees condemn themselves so frequently because if they say that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, what they're acknowledging is that he healed with a word, and all of a sudden now the onus is on them to prove how and why this guy can do such a thing. Because he didn't apply a salve. He didn't grab it and snap it around and put the bones in order. He didn't perform surgery. It was with a word that he healed. So as he expresses divinity, at the same time, concurrently with that, he expresses and reveals their sin. You know, it's interesting. We have a, a, a parallel here of Jesus healing and bearing consequences at the same time. Jesus heals a man, and he bears the brunt of it. Jesus does something good, and he's punished for it. This is the kind of the line of work that Jesus is in, to put it very crudely. Jesus is in the business of healing people and then bearing the punishment for it. And the Pharisees' response, again, in verse 6, is ironic. The Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel together with the Herodians against him, so how they might destroy him. The irony is thick in multiple levels. The, them working with the Herodians, I mean, this is like the separation of church and state being flipped on its head. The Herodians were the civil power, the, the Pharisees were the religious power, near the two shall meet, but here the enemy of my enemy is my friend. How ironic is that? Secondly, Jesus basically said, I'm going to save a life on the Sabbath. Are you going to kill on the Sabbath? And they say, yeah, we are. We're going to plot, we're going to conspire. They could not heal, and so they sought to kill. So church, we've seen what the Sabbath is. We've seen that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. We see that the Sabbath is for our good. So we'll close with a few questions. We started with five questions. We'll close with a few questions. Why is the Sabbath such an emphasis in the Gospel of Mark? Why is the Sabbath such an emphasis, particularly if everyone's free of it at the cross, which is not true? We are not. Here's why. The Sabbath is such an emphasis in the Gospel of Mark in these two stories. First, because man was acting like Lord of the Sabbath. Man was superseding God. Man is in the business of creating idols in his own image and not acknowledging the one who is the one true God. And so the Pharisees, like every legalist in the last 2,000 years, and like every one of us has a bent towards doing, is trying to define something that God has given for liberty and putting fences around it for the wrong reasons. The Pharisees, man, was acting like Lord of the Sabbath, and Christ had to come and correct that. Because when man acts like the Lord of the Sabbath, when man acts like the following of God's rules is for our benefit, what we cease to do is see how God's rules are for the good of his people and for 
his glory. The Sabbath is for the good of people and for the glory of God. We don't have time to go into to details about precisely what that looks like, but I would just ask you to be considerate. Consider what your needs are. Consider how you spend time. And then, as you see others doing things that may be slightly different, slightly more conservative, slightly more liberal when it comes to the Sabbath, have grace, knowing that we are unable to see into their hearts. But also, don't be afraid to have that conversation and do so in a spirit of grace. Hey, I saw you doing this. Why were you doing that? Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. If you have that relationship with someone, to be able to have that conversation, understanding that you are not the arbiter of what is right and wrong, but you are simply a brother or sister in Christ coming alongside someone to ensure that they are taking advantage of this good gift that God has given them. But it means being truly considerate of others and considerate of our own schedule. It means thinking about Sunday on Monday morning. It means thinking about Sunday on Saturday morning. It means thinking about how we ought to spend our Sundays. If you want to have a good example of how to spend our Sundays, read the Puritans. Puritan is, has become a, a pejorative word, as almost every other word that we see in, in you know, Baptist and Presbyterian and Methodist, and all of these words are words that were basically used as insults, and everyone kind of has embraced. Puritan, the Puritans loved fun. They ate, and they drank, and they partied, and they had fun. That's not the picture that you get if you think about Puritans today. But one of the things that they wrote about a lot was how to Sabbath well, how to rest well. And again, if you want more of our perspective on that, you can go back to the sermon online that we preached on when we, we, we looked at the Sabbath uh, in Genesis. But unchecked by Scripture, religion becomes man-focused. And I think that's what we see here in the Pharisees, and that's what we see in our own world, and that's what we may even see in our own hearts. Unchecked by Scripture, building fence after fence after fence and not asking what that fence is for, religion becomes man-focused. You may do this, you may not do this. Get on the church website and see the list of approved activities and the list of activities that you must not partake in, otherwise you'll come under church discipline. Unchecked by Scripture, religion becomes man-focused. Sabbath rest is for our good, but within the context of God's being glorified. Not in the context of us feeling superior, not in the context of us feeling like we have liberality to do whatever we want, not in the context of feeling better than our neighbor or looking like we know something that they don't. The Sabbath is for our good and to help train our children up in a pattern of life that emulates the church and emulates God. But we, the Sabbaths are for good, for our good, but within and for God's glory. It ought to be a cruciform rest. It ought to be, ought to be a God-focused one in seven rest. And I guess my last question for you, why would you refuse a good gift? Why would you refuse a good gift? Someone came up to you and said, hey, we'll get work taken care of for you. We'll get all of your responsibilities around the house. We'll do all of these things for you. You just have to find a way to get to the airport on this morning, and you will have you know, a week-long vacation, week vacation in the location of your choosing. Tropical, arid, frigid, whatever you want, you can go there. Would you do what you needed to do? Or would you say, I don't know. 
this would be easier to do the normal things I do. You wouldn't refuse that good gift. The thing is, God is giving you the opportunity. There is no guilt. There is no shame of a day of rest, of a day in worship, of a day in fellowship, of a day in communing with God and setting something aside for him. It's a wonderful rhythm to get into. We can't refuse God's good gift and flourish. As I said before, if we refuse God's design for us as physical and fleshed beings, and the world around us is being a physical creation, then we have no right to tell others who are trying to do the same thing that what they're doing is wrong and what we're doing is right. We cannot refuse God's good gift and flourish. It's a part of us. And we can't refuse God's good gift and say that we're being obedient because we're not. It's part of God's covenant to us. It's part of this wonderful, beautiful suite of laws that he's given us. We can't refuse a good gift. John 14, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. And so we do that, not obeying the commands and precepts of men, but obeying what God has ordained, what God has given us for our good, because the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath, and for his glory, because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath.